0: Hello and welcome to the Church Times podcast. I'm Ed Thornton. This week we talk about clergy well-being. Our unrealistic job descriptions leading to stress and burnout. We hear about the Conservative Party conference and what the party's Christians have been up to. And we hear from the Church Times Green Health Live conference about how churches are harnessing the healing power of gardening. You can subscribe to the Church Times by visiting churchtimes.co.uk slash subscribe. First, A lack of clarity about job descriptions can cause stress and burnout among clergy. So says a new paper on clergy wellbeing published on Tuesday. I spoke to Madeline Davies to find out more.
1: Yeah, so this was commissioned after a General Synod debate last year um, when Canon Simon Butler introduced a presentation all around clergy wellbeing and what was agreed um, was that a working group would draft um, a covenant on wellbeing.
0: This is at the General Synod? Yeah. Yeah.
1: Um, And so this is um, sort of a draft which has emerged um, and there are a number of recommendations in there. So the group have suggested what they really want to do is start this big dialogue around clergy wellbeing, and for that to happen at parish level and also within the wider church. But they do make a number of, um, I think, six recommendations. Um, And amongst them is that we look at job descriptions um, because they suggest that one of the greatest sources of stress um, is a sort of lack of focus and clarity about what is expected of a priest. Um, and they sort of talk about how some of the descriptions um, refer to kind of over-challenging expectations so whether it's from the number of churches which people are expected to serve to I guess kind of expectations about what might be delivered Um, and I think that might kind of resonate with our readers and I sort of sometimes feedback from the advertisements that that we run um, does kind of question whether um, a superhero priest is is
0: being sought. Is this because you have to be You know very pastoral but also a strategic visionary leader you hear a lot of these kind of management terms don't you in job descriptions and it's the idea that that sets unrealistic expectations
1: yes um, and the report kind of says it's unintentional so um, it's not that people set out to set impossible standard it's just that we do need to reflect more perhaps on the language that we use and, and what we actually expect And for that to be subject to review as well. So, if you've initially drawn up a description, um, that shouldn't stop you from going back and thinking, actually, when we drafted this, were we being fair? Were we setting realistic expectations?
0: And does the report suggest that um, congregations are ever the source of of clergy stress, that the expectation's there, or can it be from from higher up, from the bishop? Yeah, I
1: think the paper sort of tries to avoid pitting clergy against laity Um, so it talks about the fact that we all have responsibilities for clergy well-being so the clergy have a responsibility for what they describe as self-care and then the laity have a responsibility to ensure that that is happening so I think sort of rather than sort of pitting the two against each other it wants this dialogue to take place and for people to take responsibility um, and share that responsibility across um, the parish church the wider church um, and the individual minister.
0: I mean, the report suggests that clergy set aside time for rest, recreation, retreat, training and study. Mm. I mean, is, is there evidence that this isn't happening or is it that just the demands of, of ministry impinge on on recreational time and and a day off you know a simple day off
1: yeah I think when you look at um a breakdown so we do have sort of pie charts that do a breakdown of um what an average day is taken up with and I think the biggest chunk um from memory was administration and so a lot of people sort of talk about how if only someone would take some of the admin away from them much more time would be freed up to do perhaps what they went into ministry to do um so I I think that's that's a question for the church
0: and accompanying the report is a theological paper by the Reverend Dr Margaret Whip.
1: Yeah, I was really pleased to see this because I think sometimes a criticism that you hear of kind of central church initiatives is that there's a lack of theology underpinning it. Um, and so it's really nice to see that um, this has been commissioned alongside the report. Um, Dr Whip is um, originally a doctor by training. I think she specialised in oncology and palliative care um, and then um, obviously took her... Um, her priestly training and she has some really interesting reflections particularly around sacrifice and um, so when um, studies have been done of clergy one of the things which is um, kind of sometimes not defined is what is an appropriate level of sacrifice we do expect um, sacrifice from clergy but at what point does that become too much and I know that the experience of the ministry project um, found that those clergy who were most at risk of burnout were kind of those who sacrificed the most and perhaps weren't able to kind of switch off um, during their time off. So I think it's really interesting that she's drilled down into in, into those questions around sacrifice and hopefully that will be part of this bigger conversation. Um, she also talks about collective anxieties, which I think is really interesting. And perhaps the fact that the the church um, is sort of grappling with numerical decline and perhaps a decline in influence in society. And she talks about how that can lead it leave it prey to... Um, institutional anxiety and how that can then manifest at an individual level Um, so I think really important that that theological work has been done and I like the fact that she talks about if we could kind of remove some of our fear of one another, perhaps between clergy and laity or amongst clergy, then that would help to dissipate that anxiety. Um, So I think that's a really important piece of work.
0: And this draft, Covenant for Clergy Wellbeing, is going to be considered by the College of Bishops this year, is that right, and at Synod next year?
1: Yeah, so it'll be returning um, to Synod for... um, for conversation, which I think is really important, and I think the desire is to make it an active synod. I think it was originally based on the covenant that we have with the military forces, um, where perhaps there are some similar themes, um, some differences as well, but that's the kind of uh, model that's been
0: used. Detailed story on this in this week's paper, Anna, and even more on our website, churchtimes.co.uk. Next, the Prime Minister used her party conference speech on Wednesday to promise better days ahead for the country. I spoke to Hattie Williams about the speech and about what the Conservative Christian Fellowship was up to at conference.
2: Well, it was a broadly, as you say, optimistic speech from uh, Mrs May. It followed on from last year, which was, let's say, a less successful speech, not least because she was coughing a lot of the way through it. Um, which she actually referenced to right at the beginning of her speech, apologising in advance, because obviously she speaks at a lot of fringe events, so obviously, naturally, she's going to lose her voice. She started off by dancing onto the stage, which was widely Mm. picked up in uh, photographs and film on social media. So one of the most... Perhaps unusual things was that she chose not to mention Brexit until about halfway through her speech. Uh, She focused a lot on the NHS. She talked about families, uh, diversity, basically painting a picture of a more optimistic, uh, a more exciting future for Britain. And in a way, perhaps that has been lost in the past year um, and perhaps acknowledging that there is some frustration and perhaps even a little bit of boredom with constant front page stories of, you know, what's going on with Brexit now. She did eventually move on to her Chequers deal, again, saying similar things uh, to what she said before in that um, a people's vote is not an option. Uh, This is, in her opinion, the best way forward um, and urging Not just the Conservatives, but everyone else who perhaps have lost faith in the Labour Party um, and politics perhaps in general, um, that they should back this deal and in order to move on more than anything else. And in that way, she kind of referred back to that optimism in in the beginning of her speech by painting a a, a brighter picture of Britain kind of post-Brexit, post the agreement, saying basically austerity is essentially over, let's move on and let's enjoy that post-Brexit period.
0: In last week's paper we covered how the um, Christians on the left, formerly the Christian Socialist Movement, were very active at Labour Party conference. Um, You've been talking to the Conservative Christian Fellowship. So There was a service at St Luke's Gas Street in Birmingham um, on Sunday, wasn't there?
2: Yeah, that's not unusual. Um, a service to start off the conference. Again, um, as you say, there's similar uh, groups for Labour conferences. Um, lots of charities and other faith organisations um, tend to go along to party conferences. It's a good opportunity for them to speak to the government directly and politicians about issues which um, are particularly close to their heart. Although the Conservative Christian Fellowship um, obviously aligns with party Practices and policy, um, it's good for them to invite these charities along so that they can have that discussion. I spoke to Gareth Wallace and I asked him uh, about what the CCF do and what their role is at the party conference in particular.
3: A lot of the organisations that we've hosted with they would obviously go to all the only party conferences, but we're delighted that they are coming to the Conservatives this year. I'm just about to go off of this evening for a birthday celebration with Tearfund. We've got a Theodore Bruce MP speaking, mm-hmm. the chief executive of Tier Fund Nigel Harris speaking.
0: Mm-hmm. And I'm
3: going to do a bit of a tribute to Sam Barker, my friend who used to work for Tier Fund. He sadly passed away. He was a member of CCF. We have had to, a couple of prayer breakfasts. We've done one on prisons, with Lord Farmer and Rory Stewart I think Rory Stewart is a fantastic politician Really interesting to listen to you, Very honest about the challenges of prisons And Langley House Trust have a very good record Of providing resettlement support And reducing reoffending rates enormously And then on the same day We also had World Vision Looking at the issue of violence against children Marriott Baldwin, the Africa minister. Michael Tomlinson is a Christian MP that also happens to be a parliamentary private secretary to the different department. This morning we had Emma Reavy, who's the new head of the Trussell Trust that was alongside church leaders, including the Salvation Army, and we were looking at the issue of loneliness as well as touching on. Food banks and, and things like that. And I also met with the free church leaders, so that also includes the Baptists, the ERC, the Methodists, and the Quakers, and they would come to conference every year, and I'd meet them every year. Tomorrow, a final event, we've got Sat 7, the Christian broadcaster, and we're with Alistair Bart, MP, looking at religious freedom.
0: Finally, a different kind of church planting was up for debate at Lambeth Palace on Tuesday. More than 100 people from around the church gathered for the church times green health live conference on the links between gardening and well-being at the conference the winners of the first ever church times green health awards were announced you can read about the conference and the awards in this week's paper and on our website here are some extracts from some fascinating talks given by experts on the links between gardening and well-being first we hear from dr alistair griffiths of the royal horticultural society then from professor harriet gross an academic psychologist at the University of Lincoln.
4: There are about 8,000 papers now that look at gardening and mental health and wellbeing and show beneficial evidence. One in four adults experience, you know, at least a mental health problem. There are economic costs, yes, um, but there are also social, spiritual, mental, uh, physical, all those other impacts that are far more damaging um, in relation to uh, how we move forward. But there's lots and lots of evidence out there now that that show that horticulture and gardening and plants can improve recovery from anxiety and depression, improve emotional cognitive well-being and and improves that sort of self-awareness. And there's just a few papers here that sort of study that. Tackling obesity. So worldwide obesity has doubled in relation to uh, since 1980. 15 million global deaths in 2015. These are non-communicable diseases which are being created because we are re-engineering our habitat in our cities and we have such a palette of foods that we can eat that we, we have tricky, uh, tricky and, and moderating what we're eating. It's so available. And at that resource level of use, there are challenges in relation to how we deal with that. But horticulture and gardening, this was a, a piece of research we did looking at how um, people can um, dig better in relation to gardening and, and link to the sort of the muscles and the bones of damaging because some elements of gardening don't help with physical health. So how can we improve the way that people, people do that? And we used, you know, science like biomechanics to look at that. But, you know, some of the papers have shown a decreased BMI, BMI in male and females uh, and, and there's also this reconnection and learning of seasonality uh, and fruits and vegetables. But having that ability, plus the distance that you move away from your, from your living, not, not all people, because there are always um, black swans in science, that are, um, because people run marathons at the year of hundreds, so they can travel very, very miles, but in the majority of uh, senses, they move a short distance. And therefore, your garden becomes the place where you can be active, and where you can give life, and where you've got control. The, the risk of osteoporosis, so there are thoughts about the sunlight and increase of vitamin D, and linked to that, and a lot of teenagers, I, I particularly enjoy, well, I don't really enjoy it, but you go and look in a gaming, if you go and look in a gaming shop, you see how white um, the individuals are, because they're spending most of their times indoors. Gardeners spend their time a lot more outdoors. So they're more connected with nature, but they're also uh, involved in that. So one of the things that the uh, Public Health Service are interested in are things called METs, uh, Metabolic Equivalent Units, and basically moderate intensity and high-moderate intensity are things that people are interested in. They want to get more people active. And you can see, you know, watching television, you know, basically this way, the more METs you are, the the, the sort of more activity. Watching television isn't pretty great, yet 89% of the population watch television a lot uh in the, sowing seeds um is quite good digging obviously is, is brilliant it's it's you know and if you can care, compare that to cycling at just under 10 miles an hour it's much better um, than doing that so i think you know looking at these comparisons in relation to physical health and wellbeing but i can you know I, I can't stress how much the social health uh, elements of, of, of gardening and how powerful it is in relation to reconnecting people across the globe and, and people connected within, within the UK. We know it's social isolation increases that prediction of people dying. Um, you know, we know that we've got an increase in aging population. And we know that we're decreasing our green space in many places. All of which, you know, horticulture and gardening, and that role of plants can play a massive role within that, because it does foster social interactions. We should be giving a lot more consideration to our habitats in our cities and where we are. I mean, we spend spend so much time and energy and effort, which is important, on serving the panda, but we don't think about ourselves.
5: I've been gardening for many years, Uh, I've created gardens wherever I've lived uh, because it's been very important to me and that's driven the kind of thing that I'm interested in in psychology which is why do things mean so much to people, what's so important about it for those people who do it and as we've already heard there has been a huge blossoming of research into gardening which looks at the personal and health value of that activity and of gardens and those two things are slightly separate. The research confirms that many different individuals and groups benefit from gardening at home or at gardening projects in the community. It clearly makes people feel good, or at least better, um, and it can help people get through very difficult periods of their lives. And of course, social and therapeutic horticulture, which is a, a whole series of therapeutic activities and a whole, if you like, movement, is based on the principle of benefit But for me, the question is, why? Why is it so beneficial? Why does it mean so much to the people who do it? So to find out why people are interested in gardening, I've interviewed a lot of gardeners. I've mostly interviewed gardeners, which is a very select group of people who might do gardening. So from the interviews that I've done, it's possible to distill a limited number of consistent themes which illuminate the personal psychological benefits Um, for both long-standing and novice gardeners. I think we tend to talk about gardeners as though they're a sort of ready-made group, but we all grow into being a gardener. The themes encapsulate for me why gardening is so attractive and why it might actually keep people sane. And the three themes are identity, relationships and escape. They link to other explanations for the attraction of nearby nature, uh, including... Uh, the well-known attention restoration theory, which was developed by American researchers Rachel and Stephen Kaplan in the 1980s. These three themes are not independent of each other, uh, but their value is in drawing out the key elements of the psychological meaning that people attach to their own gardening activities. So let's start with uh, identity. Okay, so what I have put on here is these are quotes from people who are gardeners, so you can read those while I'm talking if you're bored with what I'm saying. So in psychological terms, identity refers to the sense of self and assumes a level of self-consciousness and awareness, and it includes people's personality and their beliefs and their behaviours. So identity is a kind of catch-all term. The total identity comes from both social and interpersonal, as well as individual aspects of experience. So it's the whole experience. And individuals seek to construct and to maintain their identity, particularly because it can be threatened by change, especially life events like parenthood, illness, death, etc. those terrible things, even moving house. In the context of gardening, the garden itself is a means of expressing an individual's identity it's a thing you can show. Doing the garden develops and supports a person's sense of self, in a sense. And personalizing a garden, making it idiosyncratic, because everybody's garden is different, I'm sure you know that, Uh, and your bit might be different from your partner's bit, Um, it provides personal and social worth, which leads to self-esteem. Personalisation also implies ownership, and I think that's a very important part of this. Many people say they don't start gardening until they can have somewhere to garden, or they can have something of their own to be personalised. Gardeners often say also, and I'm sure some of you will know this, that they have to start from scratch, or they would like to have started from scratch in their garden, so that they could impose their own personality. Some marvellous descriptions in research of people who've taken down all the trees in a garden because they want to have a clear slate to start with. And that can relate to both a kind of aesthetic preference, but also beliefs about environmental sustainability and so on. Uh, The processes and activities of actually gardening also provide the opportunity to demonstrate competence and control. Sowing the seeds, staking the trusses, and then harvesting the tomatoes shows that You've done your bit to help the tomatoes along. The sense of being able to achieve what you set out to do boosts self-efficacy. And, of course, the actions that gardeners describe in the process of creating and maintaining their own plot are a way to also identify themselves as a member of a community, a community of gardeners. And that is also something that's important, and people have a position within that, where they're a weekend gardener, a novice gardener, or they're a keen gardener or a specialist gardener. You have a specialist identity. And, of course, gardens can express more than one person's identity. Not in my garden, but uh, (laughs) I know many of you. People work together to create gardens, sharing their ideas and activities. But it can be hard sometimes to get that quite right. But working together, especially as a community or a group, means that psychological benefits accrue not only from the gardening, but from managing those social relationships um, in order to achieve what you set out to do. And social relationships are integral to gardening. So you have to have a relationship with your neighbour about that uh, that rampant Russian vine. Uh, You might want to share seeds and cuttings with people or you might join a gardening club. And in therapeutic groups, uh, we know that there is a huge opportunity for people to have uh, people around, other people around to talk with or to make new friends or to just simply be beside uh, for a kind of nice feeling. So, how does the concept of relationships emerge in my interviews? They do refer to these social and personal relationships, but they also refer refer crucially to the relationship with nature. It doesn't take long for gardeners to say that gardening brings back childhood memories or reminds them of a family member as a starting point for their own interest. And they reflect that friendships and families change, but that you can remember them through the physical sense of the garden. You can commemorate them with plants, you can commemorate them with objects, or you can move plants from one place to another. In this way, the garden functions as a living reminder of the past and as a place of human emotion. So it becomes very important as a physical place. One of the difficulties expressed by people who have to leave their gardens through illness, old age, jobs, whatever, is that you have to leave memories behind too. Perhaps most notably though, People talk about their relationship with nature and describe how fulfilling and emotional it can be. People use phrases like nature and gardening taking hold of them or getting hooked on gardening. And it is a real partnership. Gardeners talk about nature's active participation, which means that it continues working even when they're not there, like winter frost breaking up the soil or the magic of things changing almost overnight that David Shreve referred to earlier on. Sometimes, of course, nature can be a wayward partner. The slugs ravage the lettuces, there's been no rain, the brambles threaten, um, and the bindweed has choked currant bushes. And despite their relish in the partnership, everyone agrees that you talk to that you can't beat nature, you have to work with it, you have to go with nature's time, and you have to allow for what it decides is going to happen. The relationship with nature is also the key to the last theme, which is escape. Escape can be from something or it can be to something or somewhere. And so what I mean here is separation from day-to-day or life stresses or the usual routines and demands. So the garden offers a positive distraction, escape from the anxieties and constraints of what we know to be a very, very challenging 21st century everyday life. We're all in it all the time and it's demanding. And it allows people time and space to maintain their identity in the face of threat, to revisit the present and the past connected to the garden through the restorative qualities of the natural environment. The opportunity for escape provided by gardens, allotments, green areas, is what gardeners refer to most often when they say their garden is their salvation or that it keeps them sane. A question I ask at the end of interviews is what would you call your allotment if you had to give it a name and these are the kind of names they give them my salvation and that's I think is a really interesting uh, note to make of how important it is to people physically relocating uh, in the garden you're going you have peacefulness there's a slower pace the shift to nature's time although nature might not work with you at the same time And feeling hands in the soil, the embodiment of the physicality of gardening, helps to make the garden a totally different world.
2: Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Church Times podcast. You can find more news, analysis, comment and book reviews on our website, churchtimes.co.uk. If you are not yet a subscriber to the Church Times, you can try your first 10 issues for just £10. You'll get the paper delivered to your door every Friday plus full access to our website and digital archive. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash subscribe to find out more. The music for this podcast was provided by Sought After Sounds. Tune in next Friday for the next episode.